continue this theological discussion in a car or in a jailhouse with cops. Welcome back to Everything Just Changed. I'm Bryce Hales, and I am here with my friend Brad Edwards, and we are trying to help you navigate faithfulness to Jesus in a post-Christian and post-pandemic world. And we're asking the question in this season of our podcast, how do we receive rather than achieve our identity? And today we're going to bring you a conversation that Brad had with author Brandon O'Brien. Brandon is the author of numerous books, including Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, as well as Not From Around Here, What Unites Us, What Divides Us, and How We Can Move Forward. In this season of our podcast, we're exploring themes related to spiritual formation and the way that Western individualism is really derailing the church's attempts to do the work of discipleship that Jesus calls us to do. And in this conversation, Brad and Brandon explore ways this is playing out in our cultural moment and look for a way forward. Brandon, thanks for joining us on the podcast. This has been a bit of a long time in coming. You and I kind of connected on Twitter around some themes of epistemology and how this is a feels like a completely different dynamic, or at least as such an accelerated one because of the pandemic and this political season that it functionally feels new, or maybe we're just seeing it fresh for the first time. Part of the reason why we wanted to get you on this podcast is you're the all author of, of multiple books, and it really feels like in a lot of ways, you don't write about the same thing twice, <laughs> which is awesome, right? You've, you've written a book on how to write a book for pastors, which is so niche and helpful, by the way, that is really appreciated. You've done some collaborative works, but the one I want to start with and, and, and ask some questions about, especially how it relates to this kind of cultural historical moment, is uh, your book, Not From Around Here, What Unites Us, What Divides Us, and How We Can Move Forward. It's fascinating how much this book weaves in your story in ways that illustrate really powerful cultural gaps in our country. And so maybe could you just start by just kind of laying out for those of us who haven't read it yet, just like kind of what, what is the, what is the point you're trying to make? And maybe give us a couple examples of how that relates to this, this cultural moment that we're in. Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much for, uh, being patient and, uh, from the beginning of our conversation online to now, I'm glad we finally made it happen. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. Thanks for not giving up. Totally. Um, so, and not from around here, the impetus for writing that book was the 2016 election when um, so much energy, the media outlets and others were suddenly, and, and researchers were all trying to make sense of the popular support for Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And could only explain it in terms of there being something fundamentally different about middle America, rural America, and its perception of the world and, um, you know, versus urban cosmopolitan America. Right. And so totally. we got a lot of the it was about that time that Hillbilly Elegy came out. And, yeah. you know, there's a, a lot of writing on uh, the differences between the, the urban rural divide. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had lived at that point, grew up in Arkansas. We had lived for about eight years in, in uh, suburban Chicago, Chicago, back in Arkansas for a few years. And we're on our way to New York um, to begin work with Redeemer City to City. And so my 
the the reason I thought it was an important time to do it is because I thought um, there there are a lot of generalities uh, developing. Um, I thought Hillbilly Elegy was a fine book, but it was interesting having grown up in rural America and reading a book that sort of purported to speak for rural rural America. Mm. I just didn't resonate with it at all. Hmm. Uh, this doesn't describe the rural white America that I grew up in. In what and ways? So, like, what, can you give an example of that? Yeah, I think some of it is the kind of you know, the, there's a the unique kind of Appalachian culture that's that's almost a it's almost an ethnic subculture like Dutch Reformed or sure. or something. You know, it's a that's a, a pretty narrow. Mm-hmm. He, he was taking what I think was a pretty narrow um, sociological or ethnographical experience and extrapolating it out a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and even the fact that his, that the religion played a kind of minor role in all of that. Um, hmm. I think that that's not consistent with large swaths of rural America. Right. I mean, his, mm-hmm. it, it showed up, but um, the way it showed up, I think made it um, accessible to a larger audience, but didn't quite ring true for my own experience and, small town Arkansas, for example. So, yeah. I mean, I'm an O'Brien. I'm, I'm, you know, historically a part of that kind of migration and still it didn't, but it didn't matter in the way that it mattered for um, the communities that he grew up in. And so I kind of got mm-hmm. to thinking about, all right, so his personal experience was different. His kind of communal experience regionally was different. So maybe instead of trying to talk about these broad categories of, of, coastal and non-coastal or urban and rural, maybe the regional divisions are a lot more local and mm. there um, our regional cultures are a lot more specific and shape us in unique ways. And I also just, as I was reading the, with interest, reading the research and the commentary that's coming out, it just always felt like partially true and helpful and largely untrue and unhelpful or very often written by people who are studying something that they don't have any experience with. Mm, mm -hmm. They're looking at data points, but that doesn't actually data points. Don't tell you why somebody feels the way they feel. Um, you gotta kind of, yeah, you have to see it. You have to live there. You got to walk around and experience it to understand. So, but I felt that way, not only about how urban people explained rural people, but also how rural people explained urban people. I thought in both cases, you're not right about this because Mm, I have mm -hmm. lived in places and I've experienced them both and you're all wrong. Right. Um, and not, I don't mean that in an arrogant way. I still don't understand all the research and the data and you know, it's, I don't have, I don't have a mastery of that material, but it just didn't pass the, um, believability test. It, It just, it didn't, it didn't resonate with me as someone has finally put their finger on the problem. Yeah. Right. No, what's, what's so interesting about, I love the way that you just articulated how, our problem is not a lack of, of data points, right? It's a lack of experience and therefore also a lack of narrative. And I, lo- I love right. that you used narrative to not just illustrate this divide, but actually communicate it, right? It's yeah. not just, yeah. here's an example of this data point. It's actually primary. I was just reading an article in, in The Atlantic that that came out recently where the author was making the case that the pandemic accelerated an existing trend which is we have no more shared stories, Mm. right? We aren't all watching the same movies. I've been kind of amazed. I've been 
raving about how amazing Ted Lasso is. And I'm just stunned every time I talk to somebody how they have not watched the show yet. Hmm. And I'm like, I don't even know how to relate to you right now. Like, I mean, it might be an idol, but there's something to that. Like there's this kind of wall that happens when you don't have something as trivial as a TV show. Right. How much more significant is that when we're talking about an entire like lifetime of collected cultural artifacts and experiences that all add up to a fundamentally different way of seeing the world. Right. And so having gone from, you know, Arkansas, you know, back and forth from Chicago a little bit, but from Arkansas, especially to Manhattan, Mm -hmm. and now you recently moved to to Phoenix and you, you also are looking at your own experience through a very critical and thoughtful lens um, as is evidenced by this book, what are we not even seeing yet that is making this so hard? Yeah. Well, let me let me just respond to one thing you said because I appreciate it very much. That I I was intentional about the format of that book for the reasons that you mentioned. That I thought data will not change people's minds. Mm-hmm. Um, only stories really penetrate, um, and so that was a deliberate change, but it was a departure for me. I had never done that before. Mm. So I was a little terrified, even though I had written books before, um, that felt much more vulnerable. And so sure. I'm glad that you noticed it and I hope yeah. that it worked. <laughs> so yeah, no, it is more vulnerable. I think that's like, that. like story is personal. Like there's, there's right. no way to do it well and stay disassociated from it. That's right. So I yeah. think to your point, I, uh, there's a couple of dynamics. One is that I'm glad you mentioned the story, uh, format genre, but then also the kind of the significance of shared stories. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I think an idea I have been sort of wrestling with in 2020 is that I agree that we don't have things like shared experiences and media that's been happening for a while. I think really yeah. the, the iPod, right. Was the, that was kind of the beginning of the end where you could just carry all this music with you. And it was a, mm-hmm. a mainly personal experience to enjoy music. Yeah. Um, and then, and then everything kind of went in that, in that direction. Sure. Uh, but I think I've been wrestling kind of through how I think that there's probably about four levels. There's probably more, but probably four levels of stories that we all operate out of. And one mm-hmm. of them, a personal story one is, and that's the kind of sense you make out of your life experiences and your traumas and the things you've overcome. And, you know, um, but then there's a sort of communal story of your region or your subculture, etc. And I didn't articulate this before, I guess in retrospect, really what not from around here is doing is kind of exploring the way those two things are connected, those two stories, mm. right? kind of personal experiences, but also your communal story. And so at some level, J.D. Vance and I had similar experiences. I grew up in a uh, you know small town slash rural place. I'm always confused by the categories. Across the street from our high school was a cow pasture. So we were in town. But there were also cows in town, so I'm not sure which that is. Is that rural? Sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think so. We had similar experiences in that sense. I neither of my parents went to college, so I was a first generation college attendee, and you know, etc. So in some ways, our personal stories had some correlation, hmm. but our communal stories were vastly different. And so I think that's where um, I started. To, you know, I've recently started thinking that those it's the interplay of those narratives, my personal one, and then the one that my community tells. And then there's a kind of a national story that we have been 
I think has been a key debate point over the last year. Mm. And the, the illustration that that is overly simple but really clear and helpful is the difference between, say, the 1619 project and the 1776 commission, right? So yeah. which, which story about America, which myth about America is the, is the right one? Um, and then how does that interplay with your community's narrative about their, how they form their identity and then your personal identity? How those three, the way those stories kind of interact with each other yeah. can help. At least it helps me as a framework think through why people who presented with the same information react to that information in very different ways. And then this fourth story is our religious one, right? That we like to treat as if it's the determining one. Um, and apologists treat it that way, right? Share the gospel with somebody. And once they accept the Christian story, then all the other stories fall into place. Mm. But, I mean, when I look in my newsfeed and in the media and I talk to pastors and other things, what I'm seeing is a lot of people who share what is supposed to be this determining Christian story and they can't agree on anything. Mm. And I think the reason is because those other three narratives filter so much for us. Jeez. By the time we start kind of thinking about our faith, all this kind of filtering work has been done before we leave and look at a passage of scripture. Right. And it, and it, it, it limits certain, um, it, it renders some interpretations impossible. And sometimes it renders so many interpretations impossible that there's only one left that is what we would call the plain sense of the text, right? And so I'm just kind of thinking through like how those stories interact. That is really, really helpful. And also I'm kind of stunned by how profound that is to hear. Like there's a, there's a sense that like that shouldn't be that, profound because you're actually describing something that's fairly intuitively obvious, but it hits me that so much of the division and polarization that we've seen. And I feel like almost every podcast episode for this season of our, of our podcast, I'm basically going to make social media, the enemy of everything, (laughs) all all that is good and right in the world. And I'm, then we'll go share this on Facebook. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. (laughs) But like, it, it it strikes me that like social media ends up conflating and flattening all of those together. Yeah. And and you lose the complexity of those layers because all of that is now happening through a single vehicle, single medium, a single liturgy. Yeah. What is QAnon if mm-hmm. not the flattening of all four of those layers into a singular narrative? Right. And it's 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 leveraging it's leveraging the more powerful narratives to hmm to 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 kind of sneak in something right mm. so i think that it, it's i'm still kind of working through i think for me the value of thinking of the framework is like we've been talking about america 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 it's like half the or, or the the stare the story about america the american history american heritage we've been talking about uh confederate soldier statues we've been talking about columbus day we've been you know we've had debates and divisions over all this. And I think, why yeah. is it that America, that many of the Americans I know, if you say, you know, shame on America for slavery, they say, um, no shame on me. I, I didn't have anything to do with that. That was my mm-hmm. ancestors and they didn't know any better, etc. But then you start to pull down a statue of Columbus and they're like, hang on a second. That's my heritage. 
And I think, well, <laughs> which is it? Is it that history doesn't matter or that this is so important that it's a part of me? And I think the answer is kind of both. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that I, we we can get there eventually. I think these things all come together. At least that's after all this time in isolation alone in my room, all the, everything seems very <laughs> clear and connected but, uh, over these several months. But the I think when you talk about individualism in America in a, as a feature of American culture, mm. we're sort of trained to think that we are autonomous and we make our decisions based on reason and et cetera. We're, we're, we're told that, and mm-hmm. so we believe it. And yet we all intuit that that's not actually how things work, that we are actually deeply connected um, to our view of of who America is and what it is and who its heroes and villains are and what its values are and then who I am in light of all of that. Yeah, we we at a deep. So that's why when somebody starts to pull over a, a statue of a Confederate soldier, which you don't care anything about. Yeah. Intellectually you feel that act as a judgment on your people yeah. if you're from the part of the country that I'm from, right? And so even though you can rationalize to yourself, it doesn't matter because I didn't do any of those things. I think if we were honest, we recognize that it's just not true. We're, we're not that autonomous. We're not that free thinking. We're not that independent. We're actually deeply interdependent. And I think that what one of the things that's causing such turmoil right now is we're we have these sort of two impulses of who we think we are, and they're mm-hmm. rubbing up against each other in really disruptive ways. Um, yeah, and we're we're proving that we are not ultimately rational beings because just look at Facebook. Like, <laughs> if we oh were gosh. really rational beings, then the things that happen, eighty percent of the content there would disappear, right? Um, and <laughs> at if, least. At least. And if all rational people could look at the same data and draw the same conclusions, how could there be mm. such v- vicious disagreement? Um, and mm. if we are purely data-driven people, then why is it that social media posts that use emotional language and stir up outrage like get 30% more clicks than mm. the ones that just distribute information? Like there's just we're we're get we're being we're being shown over and over and over again. I think that we're not what we thought we were in really deep and unsettling ways. And so where those kind of narrative things came in my mind is I thought we got a lot of people talking about trauma and about temperament and Enneagram and genogram and all this kind of stuff. They're talking about your personal story, right? Mm-hmm. And then you got all these people talking about the myths of the American dream and the, how, religion is complicit in slavery and white mm-hmm. supremacy and all that. That's the national story. Mm-hmm. But who's talking about how those two are connected? Like how, how do we think about why do I have a personal reaction to that national story? And I think that's where these kinds of layers of narratives are. That's what I'm trying to kind of tease out. And I think what, one of the reasons that we're so polarized is because most of us live near people who have the same, or very similar communal story to us yeah, and probably pretty similar personal stories, similar education, similar um, backgrounds, religion, etc. probably share a same or very similar national story, understanding of who we are as a nation. And so when you see some kind of bit of information that threatens any of those things, 
Mm-hmm. It's just we vilify it automatically. But it's really weird to the people who come from such their, their filters are so different that all of the information seems really self-evident to us. But that's yeah. a function of our features. It's not a function of the of our of our filters. It's not a function of the information itself, right? You know that that's so interesting. Before we were we we hit record, you and I were talking about how. So I, I did a a fall church planter, international church planter fall intensive with Redeemer City to City in 2015, which feels like forever ago. And we were just kind of talking about how like there's a real beautiful benefit to having church planters from across the world come to a singular place and go to church together and then process that kind of contextualization of the gospel in light of your cultural lens and everything. And that was eye-opening for me. And I value you know, different cultural perspectives. Like, like that's not something that I'm like inherently, no, that's a bad idea. Right. <laughs> and it was still remarkably eye opening. And I think there's something about the American experience of that combination of both individualism and being a superpower for two generations now. Mm-hmm. And there's a kind of global narcissism that we forget how unique or, or different our perspective is in so many ways that in ways that social media is only heightening because the algorithm is, is finely tuned to uh, reinforce yeah. existing and current views so that you are affirmed and come back for more, right? It's how they monetize it. So yeah. there's just a lot, honestly, going against, especially the white American evangelical church in terms yeah. of being exposed to other narratives such that we actually have a deeper appreciation and awareness of our own. And just right. understanding, I feel like one of my questions was going to be to ask like, Okay, so how do we grow in that self-awareness? And I think these four levels that you just gave us is one of the answers and one of the tools we need to have in our toolbox of understanding like, okay, is what I am hearing or what I am articulating and valuing, it, which of the four levels is that? Mm-hmm. But also, how is, how is that maybe conflicting in ways that I have not seen yet? between the personal and the communal, like in my personal narrative, which is all about me raising myself up by my bootstraps and taking advantage of opportunities in front of me. And yet I have a real problem with anyone else giving opportunities to to people who I perceive as not taking advantage of their opportunities that they have, even though I would have loved to be given more (laughs) support, right? Like why am I begrudging somebody else, something that I asked for and didn't get? Right. Like, how is that conducive to the religious layer of narrative that says yep. everything is a gift? Right. So that is so helpful. Well, in the, in the first, so this is all kind of coming together for me still, but the kind of the first application that I have worked on for this personally is the, the, the old um, Ignatian prayer of examine. Um, mm. You the, the short version is you kind of think on the day he recommended doing it at lunch and at bedtimes twice a day. Um, that's a little more self-reflection than I'm comfortable with. So I, I'm, <laughs> I aim for maybe once a day, um, but like think over the day and, and say, you know, was there a time, is there any, you know, thank God for all the little gifts throughout the day and then try to be sensitive to the spirit leading you to some interaction in the day that you found troubling, upsetting, you got emotional or something happened and then like ask for the spirit's illumination about that thing. So this person cut me off in traffic. I got mad. Why did I get so mad about that? Or my wife said this thing and I flew off that. Why, why did that thing bother me so much? And kind of mm. let the spirit work on that thing. 
and then you thank God for his grace and pray for, you know, tomorrow's a better day. Right. And so, uh, first of all, I just love that as a spiritual practice in general, but I don't, um, I don't want to do that at all. Actually, that sounds really <laughs> seriously miserable, probably good, but yeah. Please <laughs> but continue. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I think though that you could actually take in any of those stories an experience and kind of do a similar kind of, mm. of practice and say this person posted on social media about how America is only can only, you know, if America is exceptional at all, it's because it built this economy on land theft and slave labor and whatever. And, and I just got furious. Like why, why hmm. did you get furious? What's at stake if they're right? Like what, what does it cost you if they're right? Uh, what difference does it make if they're wrong? Like, why does that hit the way it hits? And I think even just, and kind of, and then inviting the spirit, if you're not sure, then pray about it and kind of, so, you know, I think there's a lot of other helpful diagnostic that could happen with this, but I think it is as a sort of base level, even just being aware of my, my emotional and visceral, visceral reactions to things and mm-hmm. then submitting them to that sort of like, why, why did I respond that way? Um, could be a really helpful in, in those kind of four things. And I think it would help you to say, because when you start talking about that, then it undermines all the hard work that I've done. If you say that America is what it is because of exploitation and not of hard work, then that takes away from all the hard work that I've done. Okay. Well, that's Mm -hmm. a good start. Why is that hard work important to you? Why is it? So then you can, you know, you can kind of press down, but I think Mm -hmm. it just, those, that kind of self-examination could be really helpful. And I think one of my, I I think this isn't becoming a bit, a sort of baseline assumption for me about all things, but I think with the regional differences, urban, rural stuff, kind of back to your yeah. previous question about like, why was I writing about that? It's because the more I talk to people, the more I realize they have really strong opinions about things they don't know anything about. Hmm. And so people in New York are very confident that they know what rural America is like, even if they've never been there. And my family in Arkansas feels very confident that they know what East Coast elitist snobs are like even if they've never met one and i think we live in a country that's like full of people that are thoroughly confident in their opinions without any real experience or evidence to back it up Hmm. and so that's really we're talking about epistemological issues or something else but um but i think that's where like we seem to have lost i don't know if we ever had it but we seem to have to not currently have a real strong national reflex for self-examination. There's a lot of externalizing and othering that is based on strong opinions held with confidence yeah. and on very little. <laughs> and so yeah. thing we can do to encourage self-reflection and just a yeah. pause in judgment to say, Hmm, why does that make me respond that way? I think is, you know, can be hugely helpful. Yeah. What's, what's so interesting is it's, when we, we we got to interview Mark Sayers for the podcast, and one of the things that he remarked about was how in Australia versus the United States, Australia has a a common culture, hmm. right? There's an Australian culture, and and that's like been part of the national identity in a lot of ways. But the U.S., we've been kind of very culturally agnostic in terms of how we have sought to define a national culture, because we've said, no, we're going to be united around an idea, an idea of freedom and democracy in ways that are like even more primary than 
other democracies, right? And and it almost feels like there's a vacuum there in our national culture that when we have, when when we don't have the the shared assumptions around social, moral, cultural norms, we're pretty lost. We don't have an anchor to hold on to. And what used to be a really good thing of our diversity now, you know, it's almost like on the right, kind of our personal individual narratives become elevated to the religious layer. And on the left, the communal narrative becomes elevated to a a religious level of ultimate identity. And uh, this is a a, a slight transition to the one of the books that you've you've co-authored with uh, E. Randolph Richards, "Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes: yeah. Removing Cultural Blinders to Better Understand the Bible." You have a chapter in here in particular around individualism and collectivism, which was part of what I was just describing. Right? Yeah. Is there is a that is part of what part of the assumption behind a lot of the dissonance that you were just describing, and I wonder if you could. You could help us understand a little bit of like how in the world, and I want I want to I want to like talk about our tribe like primarily here. Sure. There is something it feels like that this pandemic and especially the 2016 election and since then that has injected nitrous into our culture of individualism such that it is conflated with our our faith, the Christian mm-hmm. faith in ways that we're not able to see and you know, yeah. this book, if anything, is about like trying to become more self-aware of, of what we're bringing to the text of scripture. Yeah. That's right. We, like that sounds, <laughs> that goal seems really high, like <laughs> unachievably high right now, because we can't even do it with our neighbors. Right. Can you, yeah. can you bridge into that yeah. challenge, especially around yeah. individualism versus collectivism? Because it feels like that debate in particular is tearing the church apart right, right. now. Yeah, that's a great question. So I think you're right on, on the, I I was telling a friend recently that I think all of the writing I've ever done is based on the assumption that the average American can and wants to wrestle with difficult ideas. If you'll Mm. kind of slow down enough to, to talk about it and that 2020 has really done some damage to that presupposition. (laughs) So so I'm working on getting that confidence back uh, in, in us, in all of us. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's interesting too, because the, I think, um, individualism versus something like communalism has taken on a real, uh, religious significance in the, in the last eight months because of conversation about critical race theory and other things Mm -hmm. where if you, if you start talking about systemic or communal issues, at all in some circles, the only the, the the only reason a person can imagine that you might do that is because you have been influenced by cultural Marxism, right? So, like, it, yeah, you get real fast to this this idea that if you stop talking about personal responsive responsibility and individual agency and all that, if you for any amount of time, then the the only real alternative is a Marxist view of history. You know, that mm-hmm. classes of people against each other, um, and so it's hard to talk about these things for any length of time without um, feeling like you're get, that everything is ultimate, right? And everything is is um, yeah, it's very contentious. Well, and and just to be clear too, you you started this over Zoom by showing us your your Marxism membership card. <laughs> so that's probably a full disclaimer. We should yeah. know. 
<laughs> not at all. Yeah. If you write for public consumption, you get called all kinds of things. And Mark, <laughs> not, not the worst thing I've ever been called. So, um, <laughs> you know, I think that what we talk about in the book is that individualism is sort of a cultural assumption mm. or a lens through which um, Western cultures since the Enlightenment and America in in kind of special and unique ways, probably since the Second World War. It's kind of, mm. I think in some ways, Western Europe became a little more, all of the West was maybe headed in the same direction before the Second World War, right? And then mm. Europe is now a little more communal, um, a little more corporately minded than uh, North America is. Mm. Um, but the it's it's a way of understanding identity who am i and so in the west we are who we uh we, we construct our identity so we are who we decide to be um we define ourselves over against the community rather than in in relationship to the community and mm-hmm. we have all these phrases that we use uh or kind of turns of phrases about being first and being best and we even have negative connotations for somebody. If we say they're a wallflower, you know, they just kind of blend in. Mm. They don't stand out. There's not, so we, we celebrate people who kind of um, break social norms and uh, invent themselves and are not limited to or bound by the communities that they come from. Right. Yeah. And um, by contrast in most of the rest of the world and in traditional cultures, at least around the world, your identity comes from your relationship to other people rather than your constructed sort of self-identity. And so you mm-hmm. see this in East Asia where last name, where when somebody introduces themselves or they list their name on a legal document, their last name comes first. So you're, you're even, we go, I'm Brandon O'Brien, not O'Brien Brandon, oh, because what's most important to me for you to know is who I am as an individual. Whereas in other parts of the world, what's most important is for you to know who I'm attached to, right? Who I'm connected to. Um, Mm. And I think rural America actually on a, on a scale is more collectivistic in that sense that like, when, you know, when we, when we moved, so I grew up in Arkansas, I moved from South Arkansas to North Arkansas, Northwest. And when we got there, there was a big farming family, the O'Briens, and everybody wanted to know, are you those O'Briens? Like it was very important to everybody to know Mm. Mm. part of, you know, those O'Briens. And so I think, yeah, who, who's your dad and what do you do are kind of important um, questions in some part of the country and they're less important in other places. I think what, so we could say that that's just a function of um, impulse or something, but I think one of my favorite um, activities to show church groups, the sort of power of an individualistic lens is to look at first Corinthians uh, chapter six verses 19 and 20 in in their Bible, in really any Bible translation, and it's the the famous passage is, "Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom mm-hmm. you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body." Um, I like that example because depending on which uh, translations you look at, things go from singular to plural, mm-hmm. and it seems to it seems to confuse even translators to know what to do with the, the singulars and plurals in that passage. So when I read that and when I've heard it applied, the application is you singular are a temple of the Holy spirit. 
that's why you shouldn't get a tattoo or drink alcohol or whatever because you don't defile the temple, right? Or date those who do. Or don't exactly. That's yeah. right. And so, but in the text, actually, all the yous are plural, and all the other nouns are singular. So it's not mm-hmm. your singular body; it's your plural body singular mm-hmm. in the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? And so then the application becomes different. That's actually the only way you make sense of later in the book or earlier in the book. I can't remember when Paul's talking about somebody who's sleeping with a prostitute and everybody's implicated. It's the reason is because all of you together are the body of Christ, not each of you individually in which the spirit. But because we're individuals and individualistic and because we are so individualistic, our language actually struggles to articulate Mm. anything that's not individualistic. So we don't have in formal modern American English, we don't have a plural you. Yeah. But we don't have well, a I mean, If you're from the Midwest, you do. You, it's y'all. Y'all. Yeah, exactly. So in the South, yeah, you have an you have the informal ones. Actually, the King James ye is plural. So oh. the King James got this right. Um, and but nobody reads that anymore. So that was uh, <laughs> really, it almost doesn't matter. <laughs> so Gosh, um, you know it's so interesting. When you're talking about the 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 communal orientation of a of a small town like it I, I've, I've thought a lot about how because i'm in a suburban context right and we have described our place as a place with urban progressive values hmm. suburban rhythms and small town aspirations for community and i've lived in you know st louis city was part of a church plant there and the the way that people talk about their neighbors and community is remarkably similar in a, in a very urban environment and in a small town rural environment. It's really suburbia that seems to be this kind of, uh, social landscape that drives us toward a deeper individualism. And, uh, like you, you kind of marked out that post-World War II era and post-World War II, the biggest change was the the ubiquity of everyone being able to own a car. That's right. Yeah. And, and that gave rise to suburbia. And it's almost like there's a, like Bryce and I've talked a lot about how the, the ubiquity of the smartphone and being able to access social media all the time has actually less to do with like, this is kind of this generation's printing press and more like this generation's automobile. Hmm. Yes, it is a media thing, but it's, it's also a, it's a geographic disconnection. Right. And, and an acceleration of that, that the printing press or radio or television didn't really ever mess with. Yeah. And so it's almost like the intersection of those two things. Yeah. How, so just, just with everything that you've articulated here, like besides praying like St. Ignatius, <laughs> the way that I said that sounded like <laughs> I didn't value or think that was worthwhile. And I just want to be clear. I think that's actually remarkably important. And I worry that like one of the challenges that I feel as a pastor is how do I help communicate the need for those kinds of things to a people and to a culture that sees itself as way beyond it already? Yeah. So like, how do we do this in a way that is less for, you know, those of us who are, we just love liturgy because we love contemplation and aren't ADD, we kind of gravitate toward it by virtue of temperament as opposed to character or cultural resonance. How can the church 
Yeah. And, and by that, I mean, especially the white evangelical church in the United States. How can we grow yeah. in our cultural intelligence and yeah. our narrative inter- intelligence? Yeah, the, that's the that's the question, right? That's a great question. Mm-hmm. That's the question. And I think that the the answer that's um, ask me in a year and I'll be able to articulate it with a little more confidence or authority, maybe in terms of like, you know, footnotes. But I think the, the answer that is, um, that seems to be affirmed no matter where you look, meaning in the Bible and mm-hmm. in cognitive science and in evolutionary anthropology, wherever you look is that belief is a function of belonging that you, you believe what you believe because you belong to a group who believes that thing. Um, and so the only way to change your belief is to change your community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that's, we, we, we intuit that when we don't want our teenage children to hang out with certain people, right? Like we don't want them to pick up habits or behaviors or whatever, good, you know, uh, bad company corrupts good character. We've got that kind of, that concept in our mind. But I think it's, if you look at the New Testament, I think one of the things that's happening in Acts and in the letters is that there are kind of two ways of, I'm borrowing this, I don't want to credit Andrew Walls with this entirely because I don't, if I've got him wrong, I don't want to blame him for it. But this kind of what (laughs) what sparked the idea is that essentially in the New Testament period, what you have is two fundamentally different ways of being Christian, of being Jesus followers. You have Mm -hmm a Jewish way of being Jesus followers, which means keeping the Torah, going to the temple, praying and eating the way you've always prayed and, and eaten, but doing it in the understanding that Jesus is the Messiah and that, and it reframes all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. But then there's the Gentile way of being a Jewish, fo- a Jesus follower, which is no reference to the law, no reference to diet, no, you know, etc. And instead of saying that these are two, uh, equally acceptable ways of following Jesus. So go off and do it on your own. The, the expectation is those two groups need to come share a table together and together mm. learn how to follow Jesus in a way that's not just the Jewish way or just the Gentile way, that it's a different, it's a different way. Um, and it's not a third way that some like harmony between those two. It's that it's that Jewish followers of Jesus will see aspects of Jesus through their Gentile brothers that they would never have seen. And mm. Gentile brothers will see aspects of um, Jesus that they wouldn't have seen. You can't, neither of those groups could have grasped the gospel in its fullness without the other. Mm. And so part of what Jesus is asking us to do, right? And he says it in the gospels in really stark terms. If you're not willing to hate your father and mother and, follow let the dead bury their own dead it's 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 a break from that he's asking you to change your communal story right it's not a jewish communal story it's not a gentile communal story it's this jesus it's this jesus way right Mm. and i think that that what i'm getting at kind of theoretically is of those four stories i think actually the communal one is the most determinative that's the one that actually determines Mm how all the other, you interpret all the others, right? And I've experienced that myself where as I have intentionally sought um, relationships across racial barriers, for example, I catch myself like hearing the news differently because I have been 
taught how to hear it differently by people of color who inhabit like their whole interpretive framework is different. And yes. so it's not that I know more, it's that this community has habituated me in a way that my other one couldn't, could never have and reading a book couldn't have. And so you have to sort of, you know, move into this community. Yeah. I'm getting to your question. It's taken me a while, but I'm getting no, there. Right. So, yeah. so what best, I think, I think, I think in the 21st century, what ministry has to be about is inviting lots of different kinds of Christians to the same table. I think that's what it has to be about that. It has to be, and it doesn't matter. Like if your town is 10% non-white, then aiming to be a 10% non-white church, I think is maybe fine. If your goal is just to sort of cosmetically reflect the neighborhood or city that you're in. But mm -hmm. if you actually want to fundamentally change the way you see the world, a 10% diversity is not going to do that. Like you need, it has to be disruptive enough. Yeah. It has to be a well, big enough commitment that it, that it disrupts you. Right. And so I think that's, and if you don't ever do that, you, you won't ever think differently. So I think that that shift it, it's, it's the table fellowship. That's not just, we all meet together, but we are disrupted by each other. And that that's what really, I think ministry has to be moving forward. Man, even the words that you, the specific words that you use there are like, if, if we were in person, I would be handing you like a hundred dollar bill <laughs> because part of what Bryce and I are exploring through this, this, this season in particular mm. is, is the role of institutions because mm. the church is an institution. Yeah. And in the institution that I'm a pastor at, we're called by the way, the table for the very reason you mentioned. Yeah. And one of the most frequent articulations of our vision that I, I, I said, especially early on at the table, was that, that we want to be the kind of church where you don't have to believe in order to belong. Mm. And I would, I would express and articulate and say, like, that's not because we don't take belief seriously. It's because we believe that belief happens through belonging right. and not before you belong. Because right. how could you? Why would you want to yeah. until you've experienced and been a part of that community and understood its narrative? Yeah. And one of the things I've realized and over the first over the last, you know, four plus years that we've been around, which is not long, mm -hmm. is that resonates with a lot of people. But there are some people who hear that and the way that they live it out is to kind of belong at a a narratival distance hmm. that goes to the probably the most important word that you said was if, hmm. if you want those things, yeah. then this is what is going to needs to happen. And that if is no longer an assumption, right? But if people are yeah. open to not just belonging and maybe down the road, believing before believing, but after belonging has to be an openness to becoming. Yeah. And if we if we're not open to that, which a skepticism of institutions is making fraught to say mm -hmm. the least, yep. then we're not actually going to ever fully hear another perspective, never mind be changed by it. Yeah. And so you have a pretty unique perspective as the director of content <laughs> for Redeemer City to City, right? Yeah. So not only are you personally exposed to what I just described in terms of like, the, the embodying and imbibing of other narratives and how that shapes us. And, and, and like you're connecting, especially, you know, if I think back my, my experience, uh, as a, as a resident there for that intensive, 
there was a lot of connecting the evangelical church in the U S with partners overseas who needed that support, but also had something to offer churches in the U S through that cultural exposure and and narrative exposure. So maybe could you talk a little bit about how like that piece that is becoming and how, how do you navigate that, especially in your role and how, how does Redeemer city to city, how are you trying to help the evangelical church in the U.S. actually become more open in, in ways we probably aren't even aware we're resisting. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're you're exactly right that this the the seat that I am honored to sit in is a gift. If for no other reason than it's sort of like sitting at the top of a tall building at a busy intersection, right? Like I just get to see, I get to yeah. see a lot of things happening that that. Um, that other people don't get to see. Um, and it's especially encouraging when I start to get discouraged about the state of, you know, church planting or ministry or evangelical life or whatever in America, it would, if I didn't see all those other things, it would be very easy to think that, that the whole ship is going down. Mm. But when you're connected with people who are growing despite persecution and, you know, and seeing just, real remarkable, miraculous sort of growth of the gospel in the places that they live. It's, it helps to kind of relativize some of the, <laughs> the sure. things that I get frustrated about here. So yeah. I think one gift kind of to your point is that in my experience, the Christians in the rest of the world recognize how American our Christianity is mm. and we don't. I mean, that's mm. an over, over, that's an overgeneralization. But there are, is, it, is it though? Like, I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, I feel like if anything has has exposed that reality, the last you know political season of the last four and a half to five years has been a master course in what you would do if you wanted to to ensure that that was the case. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I was talking to a, a, a pastor in Southern Europe not long ago, and he was saying, you know, one of the things he said it's fun to watch your politics because he's a one thing that both the left and the right in America have is that they're optimistic that their party can actually change things. And he said, no one in Europe thinks that anymore. Like it, it, you know, it's, it's sort of like fun to watch. Um, and, and I thought that was kind of an, and he said, therefore Christian, no Christian thinks that they're going to find a party in their, in their country that supports their, all their views. And like, we're just, we just don't even have those conversations uh, Mm. because it's just, you know, it's, and so he thought it was, you know, they also understand America, uh, they don't necessarily understand, they're not always right, but they see things, whether you're talking about faith or not in mm. American culture and call you out on it. And you're like, oh, wow, that's a very helpful insight. Thank you. So we need more of that. Um, I think what, what, what's an example of that? Just, I'm curious, like what, um, you know, I think one is the, I mean, one is the, um, uh, there's, there are times when we think we're being really, really theoretical about something. And they're like, I don't know. I think actually you're just being practical. Like you think you're being theoretical, but really you're just trying to figure out what works. And that's just <laughs> it's sort of like an, an overly complicated way of being pragmatic. And you think, oh, I think you might be right about that. <laughs> like We're having this high level discussion. And really at the end of the day, it's pragmatics. And they're thinking, yeah, 
why do you waste your time with just the practical stuff? You know, um, <laughs> that's hilarious. So I think we're trying to be more practical to be helpful. And they're like, no, we, that's what Americans always do. Why do you always think that being more pragmatic is more helpful? And you're not even always good at it. You know? so, um, so I think one of the things city to city is trying to do in this regard. And what I, one of the things I'm trying to do, I'm tasked with uh, finding, encouraging, coaching, platforming, content creators in our global networks. And so that was mm-hmm. where you mentioned the writing book. The 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 genesis of that book was a, a training program we did with church planters and then oh, cool. kind of turned it in. Hopefully it is a kind of a catalyzing thing that helps people go out and do that more on their mm-hmm. own. Um, one of the things that we're trying to help them do is to help give them permission to to read scripture and theologize and imagine ministry um, as from their local context Hmm. um, and helping them recognize how long North American Christianity has exported. We've exported faith that wasn't pure unenculturated faith. It was very Hmm. heavily enculturated North American faith. Right. Sure. And so a lot of the church planting instruction that people have, a lot of the theological education people have is Western theological education. Um, And when they try things that don't work and become discouraged, we're trying to help them say, maybe it's because you're trying to imitate an American strategy that works in an American context and it doesn't work in Malaysia or in Indonesia or in Africa or, you know, whatever whatever city or country in Africa. And so I think the, um, so we're trying to help encourage them and empower them to like think locally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's hard to do that because as we've talked about for this whole conversation, like, I mean, Americans are actually pretty bad at that, you know, Oh yeah. Uh, or we, or we're always doing it and don't realize that's what we're doing. Maybe that's the better thing is that we think we're talking in sort of um, universal principles, but in reality, we're just, we're universalizing our local experience, I think is what we're doing. We're trying, as we become more aware of that, we're helping to say like, you know, don't stop being Korean when you read the Bible. Like, don't think you have to be a North American Presbyterian when you read the Bible. Like what was, what does this, the parable of what would happen if the events of the parable of the prodigal son happened in your village, town, city, in your cultural context, what would happen? How would people react how would people feel? And when people start talking that way, they're like, oh, and then look, I see that dynamic in the text, actually. And I think, yeah, it's there. <laughs> but we've obscured it for you over generations of Western education. Well, yeah, I mean, never, never mind the fact that very the separation between principles and reality are itself an arbitrary Western separation exactly. right. <laughs> or categorical thinking in general. That's One right. of the things that made me really excited for like how Redeemer City to City is actually succeeding in this in ways that I did not have an appreciation for before my intensive was when we have the the freedom and permission to say that we've been personally mentored and and coached by Tim Keller, right? And had several sessions of being able to pick his brain on preaching, which was gold. I still have my notebook full of notes on that. But there were a few people in our in our cohort or our class who were like, why is that a big deal? Like why well, don't understand why we're we're doing this? And I had never heard of Tim Keller before uh, you know, the week I got here, uh, I thought this was a church planning thing. And just like, that was so freaking refreshing. Something that just fundamentally familiar. Yeah. Uh, it's really cool to hear that, that 
is part of the framework for how you're doing this. Well, and even thinking about the sort of arc, I mean, one of the th- one of the values that claiming Tim Keller as your personal mentor kind of feeds into, right, is this sort of arc of ministry success in North America that says you start out in obscurity hmm. and put in the hard work and your church grows and you write a book and you do the speaking circuit and and then that's how you know you've made it in ministry, right? And what I think is really helpful in um, and and in in that trajectory, being able to say you were personally mentored by Tim Keller is a really helpful credential, right? To kind of boost that thing. Um, I think in, it's helpful in my work with pastors in other parts of the world that they have absolutely mm. no expectation of that kind of success as we would describe it. Um, Their publishers are not interested in their books because there's no market for them. If they have a hundred people in a service, they're over the moon that it's so big and that it's fast because their culture is not asking them to plant a, you know, there aren't people leaving boring churches to go to exciting churches. They're just not in churches. They're just not Christians. Um, Mm -hmm. They're not looking for a better service. They're, you know, they're looking for, for community or meaning or something, and they may not even know it. And so I think it's, it's a really helpful even to kind of check our own, what what become really standard and instinctive metrics for ministry success. Um, The rest of the world looks at that and says, yeah, that's, that's ridiculous. I'm glad that you can experience that, but none of the Mm -hmm. rest of us can experience that. Right. It might be a little bit easier. In other words, to avoid exporting not just our faith, but also our culture, if our faith were not quite so defined by our culture on the home front. Yeah. So this is really good. And Brandon, we told you this would be like a 30 to 40 minute conversation. And they were like, actually, we're church planners. So it really means probably close to an hour. And we were somewhere in between. So man, I I just want to encourage anyone who's listening to get Brandon's books, all of them, He's in ministry, so he needs every dollar anyway. Honest to God, they are very, very worth your time and money to to dig into because there's some really important both local, national, and global lessons learned in being able to understand these perspectives and how it relates to the way that we are are seeing the world. So, man, Brandon, thanks for giving so much of your time and for all the work you're doing, keep us updated and come back and tell us in a year what, uh, what it is we were trying to describe with, a, with much more footnotes and clarity. Right. Uh, this is good. This has been a real honor. I really appreciate the time. Thank you so much. Anytime, man. Absolutely. Thanks so much for joining us today. Please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to our podcast. I'm Bryce Hales with Brad Edwards. Our new theme music was recorded by Danny Rankin, who also designed our logo. We'll be back next week helping you navigate life in a post-Christian and post-pandemic world on Everything Just Changed.